for the week of March 17th, 2016, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. Today, the libertarian perspective on distributed energy and climate change. How do we promote freer markets and consumer choice in a highly regulated electricity system? And can a carbon tax ever gain traction in the U.S.? We'll discuss with our guest. Then, in a related story, we'll talk about a new consumer poll on rate design and subsidies for solar. Finally, United Airlines is the first U.S. airline to use biofuels for commercial flight. How big of a deal is it for the industry? In Boston, I'm Stephen Lacey. Catherine Hamilton joins us from Washington, D.C. Hey, Catherine. Hi. Jigger Shaw joins us from San Francisco. How are you, sir? Doing well. Getting excited about the Vote Solar fundraiser tonight. So today we're grappling with a topic that I have a a deep personal interest in, uh, the the libertarian approach to the energy transition. And I I find this interesting because it's simultaneously like the simplest and most complicated way to look at distributed energy and climate solutions. It's simple because I think free market principles are very easy to understand and for many to rally behind. It's complex because our energy market is anything but free, particularly the electricity system. So looking at these issues through a libertarian lens brings up all kinds of thorny questions about what constitutes a subsidy, how individual choice fits in with the old electricity market paradigm, and then politically, how can we address climate in a way that's appealing to folks on the right? Here with us for today's conversation is Eli Lehrer, who is president and co-founder of the R Street Institute, a free market think tank in Washington, D.C., Eli, welcome to the show. How are you? Thanks so much for having me. So uh, before we talk about um, distributed energy and solar, I, I, I want to begin with the story of how the R Street Institute was formed uh, back in 2012. And at that time, you were at the Heartland Institute working on uh, insurance issues, if I am correct. And the Heartland Institute is, is also a free market think tank that's very outspoken about climate change. And they have uh, pushed the idea that CO2 is a good thing for the world. They've supported climate skeptic research. They've held a con- they hold a conference devoted to climate change denial. And in 2012, they put up this billboard with the Unabomber's face, Ted Kaczynski, with the caption, I still believe in global warming. Do you? And so the backlash from funders uh, was swift. They, they pulled out and they jeopardized the work that you were doing. And that caused you to split from Heartland and formed the R Street Institute. And, and you made it pretty clear at the time that you wouldn't ignore the reality of climate change and you'd talk about it more pragmatically from a free market solutions perspective. So I just wanted to hear how that disagreement influenced your current approach to the issue at R Street. Well, I'll start off by saying that I actually retain a healthy respect for Heartland. I think that some of their positions respectfully on climate change are wrong. Uh, quite wrong in many cases, but I don't. I would not call them all denialists. I actually think that's sort of a, a smear word. Um, in any case, though, the events at Heartland really led me to look at what is obvious from looking at insurance markets: that climate change is certainly a real phenomenon and is overwhelmingly likely to be human caused. And that was my conclusion based not so much on the climate science, which certainly is very much points in that direction, but based as much on the way insurance companies behave with relation to it. 
every modeling firm used by the insurance industry and the internal models of every big insurance firm acknowledge climate change is real. If markets have the ability to aggregate information, then either markets don't work or climate change is real. My judgment is that markets work and therefore climate change is real. Okay, so you've recently waded into the, the row over solar net metering, and you've made it clear that you don't support federal tax credits that support individual technologies like the production investment tax credits do for wind and solar. But you do support net metering for solar because you see it as a mechanism to allow individuals to participate in the electricity markets. The utilities would argue that this is a subsidy. So how have you approached this issue, and what's different about net metering to you? Well, the most obviously different thing about net metering is that even insofar as it may be a subsidy in some cases, it certainly is not a subsidy handed down from on high. It's a result of a lot of voluntary choices by individuals. There is, to me personally, and I think to a lot of other people on the right, a ideological appeal to net metering. Net metering is intrinsically decentralized, intrinsically robust, involves greater uh, private ownership. And all of these things are things that I like for reasons independent of their value or lack thereof to the electricity system. The other thing is that, as the survey you'll be discussing later shows, as a lot of evidence shows, it's very complicated to untangle whether or not net metering is a subsidy at all. It's obviously correct that in some cases for some people, uh, the utilities lose money because of net metering. And there's no, there's no doubt about that. The question, though, which has to be answered, and we appear to sort of know the answer to it at least, is to what extent does net metering also provide a benefit to the grid? And in many cases, distributed generation broadly, which is paid for through net metering, is also a benefit to the grid. In the long term, the current net metering paradigm we have isn't the ideal one for a free market. It's rough. What we have right now is a close enough, good enough way to look at it. What you really want to do is attach all of the costs, add all of the benefits to every action on the grid, and price them out accordingly. So, so that actually brings me to an interesting point that you wrote about Jigger, and you said you'd be willing to accept policies that get us beyond net metering if the utilities upgrade their billing systems and get us to an, a, better, a better accounting system so that we know the real costs and benefits of solar on the grid. Well, I mean, I'd be willing to go further than that, which is I'd be, agree I'd be agreeable to binding arbitration where we immediately agree to move to a value of solar tariff if the utilities could provide the data necessary to support it, right? I mean, that's the problem with the utilities is that they themselves are incapable of, outside of a macro calculation, deciding exactly what solar is worth to them. So then what is your take on uh, Eli's comments, which are basically that net metering is a choice of a lot of individual decisions and not a policy uh, from on high, which makes it materially different from other subsidies like tax credits that people on the right might highly dislike. No, I think we've talked a lot about the fact that, you know, distributed generation and net metering and these kinds of things are inherently broadly supported by conservatives and liberals. I think the pushback I'd give to you, Eli, is really more that, you know, the party of Reagan, which is, you know, the Republican Party that we're sort of kind of talking about 
um, even though libertarians are a small subset of that, is really the party of big business. It's not really the party of libertarians, right? So from their perspective, anything that hurts the electric utility companies, which pumps millions of dollars of campaign contributions into their coffers, is something that they don't really support. So I'm just trying to figure out, like, there's the intellectual argument that you're making, but then how do we make the political argument? Certainly, there are a lot of there are a lot of people on the right who are bought off by the utilities, just as there are a fair number of people on the left who are bought off by people who they've worked with for a long time. I don't necessarily blame people for this, and I don't think it's mostly a matter of campaign contributions. I think it's mostly a matter of having been there for a long time and the fact that these that the utilities are big economic players where they exist. Uh, so I don't think it's it could be made a campaign contribution issue, nor do I think it's entirely a matter of a of a left, right or Republican, Democrat dichotomy here. What you're really looking at is the fact that we're fundamentally transforming and changing the business models that these companies uh, have operated on for years. And in the case of investor owned utilities, which most of them are, the things that they have a duty to do, which is produce value for their shareholders. In most cases, it's very hard to figure out how a utility that makes its money by monopoly power by rate-basing infrastructure is going to do well in this new environment. Some of them might, but it's very disruptive to their business models. I, I don't blame them, and I don't blame people for supporting them. Right, but I mean, I think if you broaden this conversation into a lot of your writing on carbon taxes and other pieces, you can make that statement writ large across the economy, right? I mean, if you're somebody who benefits from the fact that you don't pay a price on carbon today, um, and therefore, the solution that you have will not be cost-effective within a carbon tax regime. You're, you're going to fight tooth and nail the implementation of a carbon tax regime, right? So the question really becomes, you know, when you think about how we allowed the Internet to really flourish in the 90s, mostly because it was a green space um, at the time, um, but it really did negatively impact the telecom uh, business models at the time. You know, how do we get to a point where America stands for innovation and the free and unfettered access to markets by those innovative technologies? It'll take some time and some doing. And neither of these solutions proffered by the left, which, in my judgment, rely far too much on central planning, far too much on, on big government knows best, are going to get us there. And many of the ideas from the right that come that come down to the idea of either this isn't a problem or things should stay exactly the way they are equally untenable. We need solutions that emphasize freedom and liberty and individual choice above other values, I think, to get to a place where at least I will be happy. Of course, there are going to be trade-offs and there are very real losers in many of these things. Uh, it's not a simple, oh, everybody wins at the end of the day. There are real losers who have to be dealt with in all of these things. And I can understand where the utilities are coming from in many cases. And occasionally they're just right. Eli, when I work on public policy initiatives, I kind of think of two main things you need to have something work, um, which is a workable policy, something you can that's going to work when it's spun out. And the other is a political pathway. And this is kind of what we're getting at is what is the political pathway when you have people who believe in a similar thing, but believe in different ways of getting there? You know, how do you kind of make make your pathway? And I'm working with a um, 
with a right-wing group that does property rights, not associated at all with the Tea Party. They do not affiliate themselves with the Tea Party, but they are more libertarian. The utility is seen as really like the enemy because the utility is the one on high handing down what they what they may and may not do on their public on their own personal property and i'm just wondering from what you're saying is what is the political pathway what are the groups that we have to bring together to make a policy work um the political pathway for this and for most other issues involves giving people stuff they want anyway the genius of so much of the left's work on climate change has been to attach it to things that other left-wing groups wanted anyway. You want more union jobs. Okay, we'll create these big green jobs programs that'll be designed for just the industries where unions are strongest. You, you want uh, more wealth redistribution. Okay, we'll do that through, through various measures. So to date, there's been a climate change policy that consisted entirely of things that people on the left have always wanted to do anyway. And that's fine, all power to them. Uh, the fact is that the revealed preferences of the left, rather than the stated preferences, really have much more to do with these other things than they do with climate change per se. And that's fine with me since my revealed preferences and my stated preferences are as much about liberty and a freer economy as they are about climate change per se. I just want to get some stuff I want anyway. So if people on the left really are serious about climate change, they will have to give up some things that they'd really rather not. Right. But the thing is, is that like as someone who's, you know, sort of leans libertarian most of the time anyway, uh, you know, there's there isn't another counterparty. Like if, if there was like, for instance, if if the Republican Party wanted to actually embrace this issue in the same way that you're claiming that the left um, embraced this issue for their own means, one of the things they would do is say, well, let's replace certain taxes on a revenue revenue neutral basis with the carbon tax, knowing full well that the carbon emissions will go down every year and such the tax revenue would go down every year. That would be a backhanded way for them to actually reduce the tax revenue to the, the U.S. government, which is what they say is their stated goal. But there's not a single person that's in an elected capacity in the Republican Party that's willing to put that position forward. It's just a bunch of ex-economists. There are a few who may be doing it soon, but on the whole, you're you're basically correct in that. The thing is that they have nobody to they have nobody on the left, with perhaps the exception of John Delaney, uh, who's a great guy but a relatively minor figure in Congress, uh, who's really willing to say that they'll give anything up. Uh, some people have said it, but when they when one person who said it, Sheldon Whitehouse, then calls for RICO investigations of anybody who disagrees with him, it's very hard to take him seriously. But Obama's always willing to cut a deal. I mean, that guy, like every time he goes to the State of the Union, he says, well, which five Republican positions will I say are my positions? And as soon as he says that they're his positions, nobody wants to support it. I would. I mean, I, I frankly have a different have a different view of it. I think he'll endorse some small some small parts of the agenda for political reasons and because he thinks they're good ideas. But on the whole, he's been a he's been very, very willing to use the powers of the presidency in a very aggressive way, in a way that if not in violation of 
of the Constitution, at least stretches it. And to me, that's the uh, that's one of the big problems that there isn't that neither party is being particularly reasonable about this. And the big thing is that, for the most part, there is it isn't a high salience issue to anybody on the right, including me. I don't vote on climate change issues. You know, uh, it, it's going to be hard. The mismatch in salience, I think, is at least as important as anything else. People have to be willing to give up stuff, even that's unrelated, if they really want action on this. So, Eli, you have been talking a lot about what the left has to give up. What does the right have to give up to do something on climate? Well, ideally, as a conservative, I'd say nothing. But ultimately, the right has to acknowledge that it's real a problem and human cause to a significant extent. That's what the right has to give up, as well as some individual relationships, as with utilities, as with coal companies, as with whoever, just as the left does with certain other groups. Uh, so some groups, it doesn't really matter who, have to be shoved under the table by both um, by both sides to get real action on climate. I guess that that brings me to the, the, the broader question that we're getting at here. And is there really a feasible pathway for something like a carbon tax, which you quietly have advocated for? People have, for the last couple of years, talked about folks within the Republican Party or on the right in Washington who have been trying to build a coalition for a carbon tax. And I don't think anyone believes that it's realistic at this point. So bringing all this together, do you actually see if the, a pathway forward? It is. A carbon tax is realistic in the context of overall tax reform. It's not realistic because there's some great affection for it on the right, but rather because I think many people are waking up to the idea that it's a less bad possibility to fix a tax system with a lot of problems and achieve a lot of conservative goals in any case. Our corporate income tax is deeply uncompetitive. Our statutory marginal rate is the highest in the OECD by many measures. Making efforts to cut that, which is vital to global competitiveness, is going to require some new revenue source. And that new revenue source has to come basically from either carbon tax or VAT. Given the enormous problem with the VAT, I think a carbon tax sold properly and with the, pop, with the proper trade-offs is possible, not as a freestanding measure, but rather in the context of reforming our tax code to make it globally competitive. But that I mean, so then that sounds like the next administration at this point. We've sort of run out of the clock for corporate tax reform under Obama, right? It seems unlikely to me that we would get a significant tax reform. It could be done in the context of changing the personal income tax system. But I don't know if that's that seems less salient to many people right now. So I think it probably is the next administration, yes. I mean, I think that if the Obama administration were seriously willing to give up uh, EPA authority to regulate CO2 emissions, then there could be a discussion. Well, and I think that you're going to have to spend a lot more time socializing the entire concept to make sure that everybody is willing to to enter into the room and cut a deal, because I don't think right now the Republicans would be willing to either. So there's one last point that I want to bring up that I'd like to hear your thoughts about, and that is how you think about the decades of support that the government has given a technology like solar that has gotten it 
to where it is today. So you that you have more consumer choice. You have real competition with the monopoly electric utility. And this is a result of direct subsidies, of research and development, um, of grant programs. And I, I just we wouldn't be having this conversation if, if it weren't for the government supporting solar and other technologies over the decades. And that's this includes natural gas, this includes nuclear. Mm-hmm. And so how do you think about that when you look forward and imagine a cleaner, freer electricity system, but also real, realizing that we got to the point we are today because of those government investments? Well, there is a certain necessity um, of government investment, and in some areas, such as basic research and pilot programs, we should increase it. The question is, where is the government money going to be most efficient and effective? And it's really in the things that the private sector won't do. The private sector does not do basic research very well and does very little of it. That's an important place for the government to act. The private sector wants things that will provide a relatively good chance of ROI. So first mover things, pilot programs are another place where we need a bigger government role. The places where the government isn't as helpful is when it picks a particular technology or a particular way of doing something or a particular person to get a subsidy, or when it subsidizes something that may not be a true market choice. The big example and best example of this is the way we subsidize nuclear power although we may make the same mistake with solar. There are lots of ways to make power um, using uh, uranium, plutonium, thorium, whatever. The ones we ended up using were the ones we could logically extrapolate from nuclear weapons production, since that's how we first started using atomic energy. And nobody looking at it today thinks those are the best, but we subsidized them and to some extent to put ourselves into a blind alley when it comes to those technologies. And that's a big risk when you start subsidizing production. So there is a role for government, and the role in some cases should be more vigorous than it is today. It also needs to be more more focused. Government cannot and should not make all decisions or be all things to all people. But certainly the government has a role and an ongoing role to play in the energy sector. Eli Lehrer is the president and co-founder of the R Street Institute, a free market think tank based in Washington. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Our second topic is very closely related to the first. Uh, It's about a new survey from the consulting company eSource that backs up what polls have been saying for years, that Americans of all type like solar. They're willing to subsidize it, and they don't like it when utilities penalize it. The survey was released in partnership with SEPA, formerly known as the Solar Electric Power Association, and now called the Smart Electric Power Alliance. Um, Catherine, you sent this survey around. It has some very interesting results. And again, these results back up what we've seen from polls over the years. What jumped out at you from the survey? Yeah, I mean, I think it was that it was cross-cutting, although, you know, there are some customers that like solar better than others. But one of the big findings was that even customers that could potentially have 
the least amount of benefit from net metering are still supportive of it. So folks on rental properties or um, multifamily housing and low income, all of those folks are very, very supportive. Um, I talked to Jen Zaro from SEPA about this. And one of the parts of the utility that they're now trying to focus on and work with are the people who design the rates. Because the rate designers use calculations on rate design, cost of service, that doesn't segment at all. So it doesn't take differences into account in consumers. And um, you know, whilst the marketing side may be doing some outreach, the rate designers haven't been to consumers at all. So I think this is where they're trying to do some more work to get them to figure out what makes customers you know, how do customers approach rates and try to get the rate design people thinking about that? Yeah. I thought this survey made it crystal clear that there was no logic to the utilities points at all. That ultimately, like, you combine the people who are pro net metering with the people who are, you know, back into net metering through libertarian values that you've got about 20% of the people left in the utilities court. Well, I mean, certainly there's long-term economic logic. If you have more people who are sending solar onto the grid and not as many people paying for those grid services, then you eventually run into a very severe economic issue. So the utilities like have a reason to worry, but in the short term, particularly those utilities with not much solar in their service territories, there's really not much benefit to fighting net metering at this point. No, but also there's an actual way to calculate the value. I mean, you can say, here's the curve, and as more solar gets added to the grid, the value of each incremental new electron is worth less, right? But to suggest like Nevada Energy does now or some of the other players who talk about it this week are saying that the value of solar is only the wholesale market price is laughable at this stage in the game. In 2016, if you use that talking point, you are doing so maliciously. One of the things that the rate designers are going to need to start doing is really segmenting so that you can take into account how different customers react in different situations and they they just have never done that they're they're not set up to do that so part of this is is changing their paradigm and thinking of consumers differently some of them have been forced through higher penetration um, to kind of have to think through this um, but I think what this survey shows is that consumers like it there you can tell them it's not good for some subset of them and they still like it that's right the cost conscious segment uh, 79% of them said that they supported subsidies for solar. And only 18% of customers said that they uh, should receive less than retail rate for uh, the, sol- the, the solar electricity produced. So as you said in the beginning, Catherine, across pretty much every group, it doesn't matter what income level, whether you're an owner or a renter, where you're located in the country, Uh, whether you're an environmentalist or a cost-conscious consumer, people support this stuff. So I guess the question on the table is that, you know, since SEPA is mostly made up of utility membership, and that is their role in the solar industry, what do you think their chances are that the utility SEPA members are all going to be, you know, much better friends of ours on net metering? I see SEPA as really giving them kind of a safe place to go through these issues and try to figure them out in a way that allows them to talk internally am- among themselves. I think it it provides them the place to do that where they don't have to be political. I also think that because it does come from SEPA, which is very active in working with utilities and is designed to help utilities 
integrate solar and, and think about solar. Uh, you know, I, I haven't actually seen the questions, and I am a little bit skeptical of the way that these questions are framed because many of the surveys do come from groups that support solar. With that said, SEPA is clearly devoted to helping the utilities, and this gives it the survey more credibility that it comes from an organization like SEPA. Yeah, I agree, but I just don't see a lot of the SEPA members actually taking anything positive out of this. I mean, you know, look at Duke and how anti um, rooftop solar they've been for years and you know they've reaffirmed that and they've been an active member at SEPA for a long time yeah right but I mean SEPA's in a in a hard place because you have utilities that are interested in utility scale solar or interested in broader smart grid initiatives but may it be against rooftop solar and they still have to be supportive of those utilities so it's a difficult place for the organization to be in and it's not a there's not an easy fix to that they have to be accommodating to to all members and just because you have one utility or a few utilities that are against rooftop solar it doesn't mean that they're against solar in general they just have a certain way of looking at how to integrate the technology well i mean as we discussed with eli i still support you know the grand bargain with the utilities i do think that the solar industry needs to move to a value of solar tariff and i think that that means that the utilities need to produce better data so that we can, on a real-time basis, figure out what the right compensation rate is for solar. Let's go to our last segment. Uh, over the last decade, airlines have systematically stripped away amenities from those of us who fly coach. But last week, United Airlines added a little something extra to its flights between Los Angeles and San Francisco. It wasn't free food. In fact, it had nothing to do with food, which is a good thing. United is using a 30% biofuel blend using agricultural waste that can be dropped into petroleum-based jet fuel, so it's actually non-food-based. The company, Alt-Air Fuels, says its biofuel, made from beef fat, is 60% cleaner on a life cycle basis than fossil fuels. That claim is definitely squishy, and I, we'll talk about that a bit more. But there's no doubt that this is an important step for the biofuels industry. It's the first time that a U.S. airline has truly committed to using biofuels for commercial operations long-term. Jigger, do you see this as a big deal? Mm, so we spent a tremendous amount of time and effort on this at the Carbon War Room, um, you know, mainly because we were barraged with folks who uh, were like, hey, what's Richard Branton doing about uh, using biofuels at Virgin? And they're doing a lot of work there using um, – uh, Lanzatex technology, um, as well as some other technologies out of Australia and New Zealand. Um, but, you know, I think the, the fundamental problem with biofuels is that they just don't pencil, particularly with the cost of fuel today. I think United Airlines is saying, where well, we're going to do this because we're making boatloads of profit because gasoline prices or diesel prices are low and, uh, sorry, you know, kerosene airline fuel prices are low and we can sort of handle it. But there's really no pathway that has been shown by these companies to get to cost effectiveness. The UOP technology is the only one that's really been licensed by the FAA to, to use in airplanes on a regular basis. So I understand why they're using that technology. But like even Solazyme just came out with their announcement that they're leaving the fuel space altogether and focusing on being a replacement for olive oil and other and cosmetic purposes. So I talked to Charlie Hobart, who's a spokesperson for United Airlines, about why they're doing this and, uh, you know, why they took this investment. And, you know, he used sort of some of the sustainability language of this is good for the environment. It's a 
hedge against oil price volatility. We know CO2 regs are coming and we want to get ahead of it. This is clean energy jobs in those communities. They're committed to operating in an environmentally sustainable way. Um, but what they've done is over the last year, since 1994, they've become more fuel efficient, 35% more th fuel efficient. So they're constantly trying to get operational improvement and that is to eke out savings. This is really a big this is a big move for them. So Altair, um, Stephen, as you mentioned, they've invested in them to um, several. What was it? Oh, to use 15 million gallons of bio biofuels over three years, and that's cooking oil, algae, beef fat. But they also have taken a 30 million dollar equity investment in a company called Fulcrum, and that's 90 million gallons over 10 years, where they're going to have the option to develop refineries near their hubs starting in 2018, operating refineries using household garbage. Now, this is like a feedstock that is just going to always be there. It's not like you have to do anything special to get this feedstock. Um, so I feel like this actually is going to pencil out in the long run for them, Jigger. I contacted a couple folks as well on this announcement to get their take. One was Jim Lane of Biofuels Digest, who is bullish on this announcement and on um, Alt-Air in general, and he said it is a pretty big deal. And then I talked to Robert Rapier, who's a chemical engineer and biofuels expert, who was definitely more skeptical. So, uh, Catherine, bringing, backing up your point, I think Jim made the point that United Airlines is taking a we're never going back strategy for using biofuels. This isn't just like a trial. This is an airline saying that it wants to permanently use biofuels for its operations, scale it up to a wider geographic area. And that's an industry first at this point. And, and on the cost issue, Jigger, we don't know how much United is paying for the fuel. But Alt-Air did sign in January a $77 million contract with the military earlier this year. And that cost, it, it said it could deliver that fuel at, at around $2.05 a gallon. So if it could do that, that's a really significant accomplishment. And then finally, these are non-food-based drop-in biofuels that can potentially reduce emissions by 50 to 80%. I'm skeptical there because the initial feedstock is beef fat. Livestock is a major contributor to methane. I think it's around 10, 12% of total methane emissions in the U.S. So I'm not, look, guys, look, I'm not... I'm not poo-pooing Altair, right? I mean, but I just want to put this in context. The U.S. airline industry uses 16 billion gallons of fuel a year. The feedstock potential of what Altair is doing isn't even close to 5% of that, right? So so we're not even on a pathway to getting there, right? So let's just be clear about yeah, that. There's yeah, not yeah. enough waste to get more than 5%. Right. Second, United Airlines is by far the most vociferous anti-regulation airline in the world. They have spent more money internationally to make sure that airlines are not regulated in Paris or any of the international agreements than anyone else has, right? So it would not be surprising to me if United Airlines is doing this as a lipstick on a pig move. Yeah, I mean, most of these corporate maneuvers are a way for them to brand around it. But I also think that a 15 million gallon contract is a pretty big deal for the industry and a good start. That said, I, you interrupted my point, which was that Alt-Air does have to expand into different feedstocks. And they're looking at Camelina, which is a non-food plant that can be grown in fields like during the time of the year when food crops aren't being grown. So there's a potential for expansion there. And they've recognized that they need to extend into different 
feedstocks. Robert Rapier, I talked to him about it, and he said that uh, he said that there were other similar agreements signed by airlines, but in some cases, in many cases, the fuel providers just couldn't deliver. And he said he's skeptical of the yield volumes from using agricultural waste and non-edible oils, and no one has really demonstrated the economic viability of the process. So we do have that benchmark, which is the deal that, that was signed with the, with the military, and we'll see if they can live up to that. So it's, I think it's a big deal if the fuel can be delivered at the, at the costs outlined by Altair, but no one has really done this at commercial scale successfully yet. So we should probably hold judgment based on the spotty history of biofuels companies. Well, well I think I've already made my judgment, Stephen. <laughs> I've, uh, so I've been working on biofuels, or I tried to, for a long, long time. And I'm glad that someone is investing still. And with no tax credits or anything available to this kind of industry, um, this investment in fulcrum especially, which uses household garbage, is supposed to reduce CO2 by 80%. And if United really does pony up and co-develop refineries, then you're going to start seeing some real biofuels being produced. Yep. I mean, if you can develop a drop-in non-food fuel that doesn't require any new changes and there's major demand for it in the sector, uh, and unfortunately right now 15 million gallons is considered major demand for biofuels, and you're reducing greenhouse gas emissions potentially by 40 50%, maybe higher, like I think, I think that's an important development in the industry. Again, All right. Everyone gets a participation ribbon. <laughs> <laughs> right. As At least it you. was spirit. At least it wasn't spirit airline because I'd still not fly with them. <laughs> okay. Let's tell our okay. listeners something they don't know. Catherine, what's your story this week? Uh, I'm sorry to have to talk about this. Um, Senator Hatch, who is the chairman of Senate Finance, the, the tax writing committee, has launched a probe into the green grant programs through the stimulus. It's the 1603 cash grant program. You could maybe call this good governing or you could call it a green witch hunt, whichever side you're on. But basically what he's trying to do, he sent a letter to the IRS and Department of Energy asking for clarity on where the fund have gone, um, you know, whether there's communication and coordination between Department of Energy and the IRS on these projects that took the cash grant instead of the investment tax credit. Um, so we'll see what happens. My sense is that the IRS has done a pretty good job self-policing uh, with DOE, self-policing this program, and they're probably not going to uncover much. Um, and remember, for, for every 30% that the government invested, industry ponied up 70%. So um, we'll see how this turns out. But, you know, it seems a little fishy in an election year to have something like this come out. Yeah, I think as a taxpayer, I think it's fine for him to do this. I mean, you've got $25 billion or so that was put out the door yeah, with this program. Yeah, and I don't think they'll find much either. Yeah, I don't think they'll find anything. All right, what did you find this week for your story, Jigger? So there is a new movie uh, coming out called Catching the Sun by Shalini uh, Catania, and uh, she is a uh, award-winning uh, filmmaker. But what's more interesting is that uh, Adrian Grenier from Entourage Famous come on as executive producer, and... Um, and uh, and now it looks like they're in final negotiations with Leonardo DiCaprio and Netflix to release this thing on Earth Day. And so you've got over 100 screenings of this film across the country being sponsored by solar companies uh, starting April 1st. And so so for those of you who listen to our podcast, you should definitely go out and see this movie. It follows um, folks who are trying to get a job in the solar industry out of the Solar Richmond program. 
as well as Van Jones's uh, um, epic, you know, rise to try to make a difference. And so it's um, it's a pretty compelling, you know, movie that you know, and 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 it basically isn't about solar. It's human interest stories, you know, and the backdrop of solar. And I know a certain energy futurist and energy gang co-host that's in it as well. I do have a few minutes in the movie, but it's a, I think it's an hour and 14 minutes. And I think I'm in like 60 seconds of it. The, the trailer I watched a few weeks ago and it looked really good. Yeah. There's, I think there's three screenings in DC. There's a 21 in New York. There's a bunch in San Francisco. I think there's even one in Detroit and, you know, Denver and other places. So it's going to be around the country. Uh, I'll just quickly highlight two stats that I think are important. First of all, the IEA showed this week that carbon emissions were flat globally, even while the global economy grew last year. And that marks two years in a row that we've seen uh, the global economy grow and emissions, greenhouse gas emissions remain flat. So we are starting to see the potential decoupling of GDP growth and greenhouse gas emissions. The second is the EIA, the Energy Information Administration, which is the the U.S. government statistics arm, showed that last year electricity consumption dropped by 1.1%, and now we've seen electricity consumption fall five out of the last eight years in the U.S., and we're far enough beyond the recession and economic hangover that we can safely say that efficiency is playing a role. There are many factors, of course, but efficiency clearly is playing a role in this change. So two really uh, dramatic stats that came out within a couple of days of each other this week. Yeah, I thought that the uh, reduction in electricity usage was huge. I mean, even with the the U.S. economy adding a million jobs, for us to be using 1.1% less electricity means that those light bulb bands and all that stuff really made a difference. Yeah. yeah it's awesome. Okay, folks, that is the end of our show. You can email us with questions, comments, concerns at podcasts at greentechmedia.com. You can also check out all our back episodes. We're on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher Radio, uh, pretty much any podcast app of your choice. You can grab our feed at greentechmedia.com. We'll be off next week, but then we'll be back the week after that. Catherine, you're on vacation next week, correct? Where are you going? Yes, Puerto Rico, the land of constant sunshine. Spring break. Absolutely. <laughs> Jigger, have a good week and weekend. Are you traveling anywhere? You're in San Francisco now. Going yeah, no, time. I'm just going to party it up for St. Patrick's Day uh, with 900 of my closest friends at the Vote Solar Party. So uh, happy St. Patrick's Day, everybody. That's right. Have fun. With Jigger Shaw and Catherine Hamilton, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang a production of greentechmedia.com.